Hi, I'm Bill Arnold. Thank you for listening to this podcast. There are many more podcasts available at MyFaithRadio.com. Your support makes this possible. Thank you. And a warm welcome to the Afternoon Show. I'm Bill Arnold, and you are in for Guide Talk, now with an expanded version. We're going to go a little bit longer than usual. I think Guide Talk has become a full two hours on Thursday, and boy, is that fun for me. And I think it's, uh, from what I hear, the listeners, uh, you like it. And I'm so (laughs) glad, because we've got a great power panel today. We've got uh, Jeff Verdorn, Pastor Tom Parrish, and Dr. Greg Borgon to answer your questions. So whatever it is you have, let us know. 877-933-2484. 877-933-2484. Oh, okay. Rosie's, I don't know. What, what was, what was <laughs> going on there? I was trying to open a sparkling water and not have it go like that. Oh, okay. <laughs> so I was doing it under the table yeah, while you were talking. so distracting, though. I thought, what are you doing over there? Anyway. So sorry. Proceed. Anyway, great start to the show, so let us know what questions you have. We do want to uh, start a conversation to get things going with uh, what's very um, central in the news right now, and that is the discovery of the Titan, this uh, exploration submarine vehicle that went after uh, a sightseeing tour of the Titanic, which has been found, and there, you know, you'd think about a search and rescue mission, uh, this is a huge search and rescue mission. They uh, resources came in from all over. Search and rescue missions are expensive. Yeah, very. You know, but there's never been a greater search and rescue mission than Jesus leaving heaven to come to <laughs> save us. Good word. Yeah. Yep. yeah. But let, let's just chat a little bit about this because I have felt all kinds of emotions when this thing submerged to go see the Titanic, which I think you could see. Uh, on your couch on the internet, you know, the pictures that you're going to see in this sub are available on the internet right now, right? Right. But I'm not a, I'm not a risk taker like that. I don't want to get on this little tube and go 13,000 yeah. feet down. You know, what people probably realize because if they swim at all, they go into certain depth and they, they have to equalize their ears um, because of the pressure. But that's only going down to maybe 30 or 40 feet, but... The Titanic is located 12,500 feet in depth. And nuclear submarines, I mean, that was my area of expertise when I was in the Navy, depending on how the hull is constructed and the material is constructed with, will determine what they call its crush depth. And so it's nowhere near where this submersible was at 12,500 feet. You can imagine the pressure. So uh, latest news is that the debris field, uh, parts of the Titan, unfortunately, were located, the debris field was located north of the bow of the Titanic. And the scientists got on and said because of the dispersion of the material that they, that they were able to identify that the submersible probably imploded above uh, some number of feet above the Titanic itself, and that's why it dispersed. And so it's just a terrible, terrible tragedy. You can just imagine, Bill, um, uh, the what would what we'd be going through your mind there. What is five or five people on that? Mm-hmm. And, Can't stand up on it. No. 
And so the idea is, is that it just doesn't, uh, the implosion doesn't happen in a second. I mean, it starts to come in, the hull starts to come in. It's just a terrible feeling. I mean, you can, you know what I'd, I'd wonder is, if they weren't followers of Christ, I'm wondering what they were thinking mm, exactly uh, the, from the, the moment they saw what was taking place, and there was probably no way around it. What went through their mind? And uh, in, in more interesting to me is what would the Lord have allowed to go through their mind mm-hmm. at that moment? So it's terrible, terrible tragedy. So, Greg, Greg, if you have Greg, you seem to have a little bit more expertise with their Navy background and stuff. When that ROV, the remote operated vehicle, mm-hmm. went down, what if they would have found them, maybe resting on the bottom because they're entangled or something? What could they have done with that ROV? Do you know? I mean, could they have done anything well, to help them with that small ROV vehicle? Well, not that small one. They would have to have a larger one that would have on it, like for instance, on on submarines, and and we're talking about fast attack submarines, they often have uh, various mechanisms they can attach to the deck of the submarine that carries a submersible. SEAL team members use it all the time. And so I'm assuming that they would have had to had on site a larger one that had the structure and the derricks or whatever it is to be able to somehow uh, grasp it to bring it slowly to to the surface. But mm-hmm. that small vehicle that they kept showing that went down there, the robotic vehicle, um, it didn't look to me, as I looked around it, it didn't look to me like it had any any kind of a um, mechanism that could have done that. It's amazing how this is such a reminder that all we have is the moment that we're yeah. in. We have no guarantee of later on. Mm-hmm. I, when they went down in that submarine, I know they had to be excited they paid their money. They had thought about this for months. They they expected to come back. And then an hour into it, something went terribly wrong. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, it takes for that, that submersible that they went down in, uh, they, they were saying on the news at least, an hour and 14 minutes to get to the depth of at the bottom of where the Titanic is. And so it, it's a long descent down there. Um, and so, who knows what might have been happening as they were as they're going down? Because they lost contact with the submersible um, not long after it was launched. So, so who knows? But you know, people have a sense or a feeling. You know, I've got time. I've got plenty of time. Of course. But the fact of the matter is, you could be gone tonight. You have no guarantee that you'll live another second. It's only by the grace of God that you do. So putting off what is the most significant and important decision you could ever make is foolhardy, frankly. And sooner or later, um, it you know, you just don't know. You just don't know. So don't put it off, folks. If you're on the edge, if you haven't embraced Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, if you haven't capitulated and bent your knee, repented and received him as Savior and Lord, now's the time to do it, not tomorrow. Not tonight, not a week from now, now. And that's what I have come to understand for a long time, Greg, that it is the moment now that we are serious. Today, as Paul says, Second Corinthians 6, behold, today is the day of salvation. We don't know what's going to happen. And so be ready now. The one thing I know for sure, and I believe with all my heart, that as that began to implode, and however long that took— it is amazing how even in those dire moments, the Lord is still reaching out to people. What he did, I don't know. 
what he said to them, I don't know. But I've been with so many dying people, and it has astounded me how many of them, even the atheists that I've been with, at that final moment, you know, are saying, what do I need to do? How do I, what do I need to do to be saved? What, what, what does Jesus want? And I've had people actually do that on their deathbed. So there is a consciousness built within us, and then the Lord, I think, speaks through that. What happened to them? Only the Lord knows, but I know this. They were given every opportunity as we all are, to respond to the Lord. Well, you know, it's, it's a stark statement when you read it in the Bible, it's appointed for man to die once and then judgment. I mean, after, I mean, when, when you die, grace is no longer available. Um, grace may be unmerited, but it's not unlimited. There's a point at which it is not going to be there anymore. And, and if, you, if you don't make that decision... As it says in Scripture, it's appointed for man to die once, then comes judgment. That's what you have to look forward to. And it's not a matter of scaring anybody into heaven. It's a matter of coming to the clarity about your Creator, aligning yourself with the heart of God, finding out what part you're to play in in facilitating His redemptive purposes in a fallen world. And the, the beauty of coming to Jesus Christ is when you give yourself up and lay yourself at the foot of the cross, God gives you back your true self. That's your true humanity, not the humanity that you've embraced or that you've assimilated from the world around you, but the humanity that God gave you at the moment of your birth. And keep in mind, audience, that none of you are a happenstance, a circumstance, a mistake, Matter of fact, it says in Scripture that God superintended your formation in your mother's womb. He knew you before you ever were. He set the number of days you would be walking on this earth. So you were on the heart of God before you ever came to be. And he has a purpose for your life, according to Ephesians 2.10, that he's prepared, it says, in advance. And when you tune your heart to the heart of God, which begins at the moment of a conversion— God progressively reveals to you your unique purpose in this great mosaic called facilitating God's redemptive purposes. And so that's what our, our purpose is, is to align ourselves to the heart of God and to facilitate his purposes in the world around us. Good word, Greg Borgon. This whole submersible episode has reminded me of the urgency that I have in my heart always to try to help bring the good news of the gospel to people because time is limited. Yeah. And that it was just, again, fired up a sense of urgency. So yeah. I'm, we're behind the microphones today speaking to you and I want you to know we love you and God loves you and God wants you to be part of his family. So if you place your faith in him and believe on his name, you will be saved You will have that born-from-above experience, and we want you to to live there. Everything you give your allegiance to on this earth, as Solomon said, under the sun, on a horizontal plane, devoid of any vertical relationship with your heavenly creator, everything you give yourself to you think is uh, honorable or noble or a just cause will ultimately let you down. Why? Because it's inhabited by people who are have a sinful nature, and we always default to who we truly are at the core. 
So whoever you're attaching yourself to, whatever association, organization, or whatever, um, if it's inhabited with, with human beings, you're in for a rude awakening, I'm afraid. But the one who will not let you down is your Heavenly Father, who never sleeps, who holds you in the palm of His hand, who loves you unconditionally, and He cares about you, and He wants you to be everything He knows you have the capacity to be because He built it in you. Right. And it's as simple as crying out, Jesus, hear me and save me, Lord. Start there, he'll be there. Yep. Great start. We're going to take our first break, and when we come back, we've got questions coming in, and we want more from you. 877-933-2484. 877-933-2484. It's Guy Talk, or Guys Who Talk, Tom Parrish, Greg Borgond, Jeff Verdorn, and yours truly. I'll be right back. Listen to Faith Radio Live or on demand no matter where you go. Download the free Faith Radio app in your app store today. Welcome back to Guy Talk, or Guys Who Talk. We got a pretty impressive power panel today. Tom Parrish, Greg Borgon, and Jeff Verdorn ready to take your questions. Before we get to them, I have a question for you guys. So if you've got a, like a daunting project or something that is, is kind, of a, uh, kind of a big project in your head, do you, what is your initial response? Do you sort of think about it and kick the can down the road a little bit, procrastinate a little bit? Do you say to yourself, I'll figure out how to get this done? Or do you say, I'm going to call somebody, see if I can't get some help? What's your first instinct? If, if YouTube doesn't have it to help me, then I'll call somebody. You're going to try to figure it out yourself? Uh, no, no, I'll call somebody to seek help if I don't figure it out. What I try to do, and I did this in college, and it really got me through college quite well. Instead of looking at the beginning of each quarter, I was on the quarter system, at all that I had to do by the end of the quarter, which was depressing, mm-hmm. I literally broke it down week by week and then day by day. I have to have this done today. I have to have this done tomorrow. And it wasn't that difficult. I could still do all the things I wanted to. And my grades kept up there and I did fine. I can do. Go ahead. I can do all three of those things all in the same day, depending (laughs) on what it is. I can kick it down the road. I can call somebody up or I can attack it right away. So depending on what it is, I can do all three of those things in one day. I'm in that camp. I like it. That's interesting. All right. All right. Let's get back to some questions that have come in from um, you. Let's see. I have a quick question hoping you can help me. Do you think Eden was created on the third day of creation or was it something the Lord planted after because in Genesis chapter 2, verses 5 to 9, the description leads me to believe he created Adam, then planted the garden, but in the order of creation, he created vegetation, then man. So this is my take on this. If you look at Genesis 1, there seems to be a clear order of creation, a sequential 
pattern, right? Day one, day two, day three, day four, and so on. Now, I know in Genesis 2 that it appears that that the, the sequence of events, man versus plants, is reversed, or it appears to be reversed. How I reconcile that is I don't think Genesis 2 is concerned so much with the sequence of events of how they happen, but is giving us more information, more detail as to what actually happened in that time. So my view is when I look at Genesis 1 is there's a hunk of rock it's void. There's no life on it. And God says, hey, I'm going to pick that hunk of rock, third from that star, and I'm going to create a garden in six literal days, which is another part of this creation story, whether these are literal days or not. Mm -hmm. Um, The Hebrew word is yom, and it can mean age, but it can also mean day. And so the context drives it. And within Genesis 1, you have each day says there was evening, and there was morning the first day, and so on. So I think the context tells us that these are days. Um, But at the end of those six days, he has a fully formed garden with life. And the pinnacle of all his creation, like Greg was talking about earlier, man is the pinnacle of God's creation, the only being capable of being in relationship with God, the creator of all. Yes, I I smile at that question because I— asked the same question a long time ago. So, listener, you and I have been on the same page. But I had the privilege of working with a rabbinic Jew, uh, one who was a Messianic Jew who had come to the Lord Jesus Christ and was very articulate, and he was out of Connecticut, and he came to our church and did things uh, very powerful. And I remember asking him something almost along that same line about Genesis. And he said, how did he say that? He said something about, well, the problem among Gentiles, because he had grown up Jewish, is that we're always looking at the details, and maybe we're missing the big point, because Genesis 1, 2, and 3 says there's only one creator. He's the creator <laughs> of the stars, the moon, the heavens, the earth, people, everything. And he said it's not so much the order as it is who is the creator, and you should come away from it recognizing the one true God. Yeah, it's similarly, it, it, it's, it's, for me, it's not important to know what happened sequentially as much as to know what happened, period. And so, consequently, there's a garden. Consequently, he created Adam and Eve, So, and they lived in this amazing place, this garden. So the fact is, I mean, we do that in conversation all the time. We'll say something like, I don't know if it was last week or the week before, but what happened was this. Mm Mm-hmm. And so you pay attention to what happened was this and not when it occurred because that's not important. At It's not integral to the significance of the event itself. Yeah. There's another sequential issue in, in two. It was when was Eve created, right? So we have a picture of man being created on day six in chapter one. In chapter two, it appears to be there's, there's like some time had lapsed by the time that uh, Eve was created. So then there's lots of debates about whether this was still on the sixth day or sometime later. Could God have created woman after the sixth day, after he said everything was very good and kind of rested or, or ceased his creative process and, you know, theological debates. But you're, you're, you're right. I think the big point is God made a man and God made a woman, and he gave them the ability to be in relationship with him and to reproduce themselves and fill the earth. That's right. And we wake up a few thousand, six thousand, some odd plus years later, and which I think is when the garden happened when you look at the timeline of Genesis, and there's eight billion people on this planet, and God still wants to have a relationship with every single one of them. 
Is it interesting that our whole school system has moved toward what we call evolution or along those lines, that somehow we came from nothing and the molecules divided and all this type of thing, and keep missing the point? You know, who started all this? Who is in charge? Who is the one that created us unique? And if you don't understand that it's the one true God revealed in Jesus Christ, then you're not obligated to anybody for anything. You can just be your own God. And I think the struggle for most of the, the people I've worked with that come from a academic background, intellectual background, scientific background, is for them to come to grips with the fact that there is a personalization to creation. It is not simply a mechanical process, mm-hmm. but the Lord's hand himself was upon this. And what's fun for me is the older these people get and the more they have disease and problems in their life and the more their family doesn't always turn out the way they thought, they start asking the right questions. Yeah. Why am I really here? What does it matter what happened if it was this or that? Who created it? And what am yeah, I supposed to do? I, I mean, I'm in total agreement with you, Tom. It's not a matter of process. It's a matter of relationship. And the fact is, is that um, God wants us to establish a relationship with him, a familial relationship with him, because he has so much he wants to give and impart to us. There's so much that he wants to share with us. And we need to be in a frame of mind and a frame of the soul to be able to respond and hear what he's really trying to tell us. And what he wants to teach us. So it's all about relationship mm-hmm. and less about process. You know, there's a famous atheist. His name is Richard Dawkins. He's kind of well-known in atheist circles. And mm-hmm. he believes in evolution but has begun to realize, as many top biologists and evolutionists have realized, we don't have enough time to really understand how, how we all, all this diversity of life came from just, you know, a single cell someplace in a pond of goo. So <laughs> Richard Dawkins and others have come up with a an alternative explanation to where life came from, where it began in the first place. And that is what he calls directed panspermia, that there's life throughout the universe and that it was directed, in other words, some alien deposited life on this earth, and that's how life began on this earth. Well, any fifth grader will ask the next logical question. Well, where did that life come from? <laughs> they just He just passed the problem off to another world. What's, what's fascinating to me is he doesn't recognize that his view of directed panspermia is exactly the biblical account, only instead of aliens depositing life on earth, it was a divine God, creator of all things, who deposited life on this earth. I, I find it interesting that in our arrogance as human beings, that we'll create a body of truth to refute the real body of truth Hmm. because we don't want to believe what's right there in front of us that's been declared in his word, that's been lived out in in history through the person and work of Jesus Christ. We we can't, our mind can't get around that, so it means that I'm going to have to capitulate pretty soon, and, and so I don't want to do that, so I'm going to create an alternative truth and that's what I'm going to support, just like what Dawkins did. All right, we're going to take a break, and we come back. Lots more guy talk, so send your questions over, 877-933-2484. Again, 877-933-2484. This is Guy Talk, where we have respectful conversation about God and the Bible. There's no yelling and talking over each other. Unless that would improve our ratings, then we're happy to do that. <laughs> we'll be right back.
It's the Afternoon Show with Bill Arno. Drive time, drive time, let's get it started. Jump in your car, what's for dinner? It's the Afternoon Show with Bill Arno. It is that time of the week where we do guy talk or guys who talk, and we have got a great uh, panel here today. We've got Tom Parrish, Greg Borgond, and Jeff Verdorn. So whatever questions you have, let me know, 877-933-2484. There's some great questions coming in, so I just want to encourage you to get your phone out or however you text and send your question over because we'd love to get it from you. So 877-933-2484. I assume you gentlemen have all owned or driven a manual car where you have to put in the clutch and shift. Absolutely. We, we call it a stick shift. Stick shift, yes. Yeah. Jeff, you as well? I have. Okay, so I assume that we, this is just an analogy I'm creating in my head on the spot, but we have different gears when it comes to prayer. You don't really have to get too much out of first gear to say, Lord, bless my day. But if you're awaiting the results of a biopsy, that could be cancer. You might be praying in fifth gear. And so you have very different ways in which you pray. How have you prayed when you feel more desperate than ever for God? Well, for me, I, I think the, the conversation gets much more frank. And I, I'm less concerned about how I'm phrasing it and more just pouring out my heart. Um, and the, the beauty of it is we have the Holy Spirit who... Uh, translates or understands what we're trying to convey, even though our words, you know, we always feel like, gee, I should have said this in my prayer, I should have said that. Don't you know that God knows what's on your heart? He judges the motives of men's heart. So the idea is is that going to the to God, all he wants is a conversation, not a treatise. And for me, at, at a real difficult time, mm-hmm. is... When I'm just pouring out my heart, and sometimes you say things that that might not be totally accurate or theological, but I trust because I have a relationship with my heavenly Father. I trust that He knows what I'm really trying to convey. I've almost died twice in my life; came very close, and I can remember the uh, one was cancer, and the other uh, was I had. Uh, bad lung infection, and I had encephalitis with it. I mean, it's just terrible headache and everything. And the doctors didn't really know what to do. Initially, I want the Lord to know the problem. So it was (laughs) like I was informing him of what was going on. Lord, you need to know what's actually happening down here. Mm -hmm. Then I got into it. I'll be honest, I got into a little bit of bargaining. And I'll just Mm -hmm. be blunt about it. I said, Lord, if you'll do this, I'll do this. There reached a point, though, and I remember when they were wheeling me in for the surgery. Uh... It's like a peace came over me, and I finally said, it doesn't matter what happens. What happens is what you've done for me. And I was put under, came out of the surgery several hours later, and uh, that was seven years ago, and that's turned out well. Same with the other one. But it has been an amazing journey for me because if I faced a big problem right now, I think I'd start almost with the same pattern that I had before. But I know ultimately where it goes, and at least for me it goes to finally a place of peace and saying, you're in charge, not me. It's almost like it's the the grieving process, you know, where you start off with denial, first of all. Then you're angry, um, and then you're bargaining, just as you suggested, Tom. But you get to a point, finally, after you poured your heart out to God and you're utterly exhausted, is acceptance. And, Lord, whatever is your will for my life. 
I need to rest in your arms and leave it to you. I and see last that. fall. Go ahead, Jeff. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Last fall, I had a, a detached retina. It was on a Sunday evening. I called the hotline, and and you you get on the internet and you start googling your symptoms, and you quickly realize you've got a detached retina. And uh, they basically said you need to get in first thing tomorrow morning. Fortunately, I did. But you know, you go to bed that night, and you're kind of going, "All right, Lord, you know, if I don't really want to lose my eyesight in my right eye, but." you know, let your will be done. But, you know, but I really would prefer to see in my right eye, but let your will be done. But, you know, if it was my will, you know, I'd really like to keep my eyesight. But uh, Greg, just like you said, if you can end your prayer genuinely and and filled with a, a love for God and a trust for him that he is working all things for good always, then you could, you should be able to end your prayer just as Jesus did in the garden, not my will, but your will be done. Yeah, I, I get to the point sometimes in a prayer like that, uh, not sometimes, many times, where I finally am exhausted with words, and it's time for me to anthropomorphically, if you will, climb up into my Heavenly Father's lap. That's a big Just word, my, Big put, word. <laughs> put what my, does that mean? It means that we attribute to God human attributes or human um, uh, ways of uh, dealing with things, like with hands and so forth. Uh, that God has hands and and that kind of thing. Uh, that's what we mean by anthropomorphically. But the the idea is is climbing up in in, a, in a, my own weird sense, climbing up into His lap and just putting my head on His chest and saying, "I'm just going to rest in You, Lord. I, I'm exhausted." One thing I can give assurance to for everybody who's listening: if you believe in Jesus, and I've seen this over and over and over. When people either reach old age or a disease or they've had serious heart problems and the doctor says, I don't know what we can do. I watch people, even Christians, go through the bargaining process. Mm -hmm. They go through the telling the Lord what he needs to do type of thing. But I have always seen, and I mean this, I have always seen that person finally come to a point where it's like a peace comes over them. The peace that passes all understanding that we hear about in Scripture. And at that point, they yield and they say, whether I live or die... I yeah. belong to you, Lord, and I've actually watched people on their deathbed smiling with a glimmer in their eye as they're ready to go and to be with Jesus at that final moment. So I want to reassure everybody who's listening. You might say, well, I don't know what I'm going to do if I got in that situation. Well, the Lord knows, and he knows how to get you to the right situation. You can talk to the Lord. You can say whatever you want. You can be blunt and, and bargain, but you will come to a point where the Lord will offer you his peace, and when he does— by all means, take it. Indeed. Amen. And Paul Paul even got to the point in his life where he, he understood and said, I desire to depart and be with the Lord, which is better by far. It, it's, you know, everybody wants to go to heaven, but nobody wants to die to get there. But guess what? <laughs> heaven That's heaven true. is a much better place than this world. Yeah. And, you know, if we had the faith of Paul, we would be saying and declaring, it's better for me to depart and be with Christ by far. Far. Yeah, nobody wants to go through the transition. They just want it to no. happen. <laughs> well, that's why I've been rooting for the rapture for, for, for the last few <laughs> decades. You and my wife so. both, rapture yeah. comes, she says, come. So I want to go back to the bargaining phase that you guys talk about. What exactly do you have that is of interest to God? You, what bargaining chip do you have that is of any, any interest to him? What does he need from you? How about nothing? Well, sure. It's called stupidity. Okay, good. <laughs> I've got plenty of that. But I think I can bargain because the battle I've always had and the battle every human being has is who's going to be God in my life. Mm -hmm. And that's what Adam and Eve had to struggle with. Am I going to be God? 
Once you realize you're not God and your questions and your demanding isn't going to change a thing, then you can finally yield to the one true God in Jesus Christ. Well, I mean, the, the bargaining is everything to do with, with us trying to, uh, Lord, you've been trying to do this my whole life, but I wasn't willing to do it, so now I'm ready. Yeah. If, if you'll just do this, right. I'll do that. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. So what about when you pray for something, even when it's past its um, natural place? Like, let's look at Zechariah and Elizabeth. They were old and barren well past menopause and the ability to procreate, yet they still prayed. Yep. Mm-hmm. Well, What's think, with that? I think there's we're struggling between two things. We're human beings. So we have a natural human way of looking at life and saying, well, I'm now 40 years old, probably not going to have any more children, you know, or, or my wife isn't going to have any more, or whatever that may be. But the Christian side of us and the part the Holy Spirit works on is to, to move in us to ask the Lord what seems impossible. Yeah. And the advantage to that is I would rather have people doing that, asking for the impossible, because that's what draws you into the relationship with the living Lord Jesus Christ. And when you get there, miracles happen beyond anything we can comprehend. He knows how to handle it. We need to trust in him. You know, when you get past the point where you're capable of doing something in your own ability, well, then you have to rely on God and his ability. And think of the stories in scripture where God does the miraculous in uh, against, uh, you know, unsurmountable odds. Think of, you know, uh, a Joseph coming to Jericho and, and taking the town. He says, well, march around the city. That's how I'm going to take it. And, you know, lo and behold, the walls fall down. Gideon, you know, send all your army's troops back to where they were at. And he ended up, what was he end up with? 300 men and they break some pots and they blow some trumpets and they defeat a whole army. Jehoshaphat <laughs> is surrounded and he's going to be wiped out. Lord, help me. I, I cannot fight this fight. And and he says, come up to a high mountain and watch what happens. And all of their enemies turn against each other and destroy themselves. God loves the impossible. You know, I've come to this realization in my life, God is God and I am not. So he is capable of doing far more than I can imagine. My sister uh, contracted throat cancer. I had a uh, by her tongue had a, a huge uh, tumor that they had to remove and the radiation therapy that she had to have killed her taste buds. So she has no taste. She went down to 56 pounds and now she's slowly gaining weight back, but she has no taste. So I'm going to be honest with you folks. My prayer every night for my sister, God returned her taste buds so she can taste food again. I'm grateful she's eating and she's gaining weight but I'm asking you for a miracle. Now, will God do that? I'm trusting that he will, but I'm also trusting he knows what he's doing. And so I have to rest in that, even though I'm anxious about it. And that's what the desire of my heart is, is that she gets her taste buds back and then a miracle is performed because the doctor says there's no way they're coming back. One of the things, Bill, that really impresses me about the whole story about March Around Jericho, they actually did it. I mean, can you imagine... (laughs) Day one, I, I'd like to make a video of this, and we could use it for teaching. Day one, you know, Joshua says, we're going to march around the city for seven days. On the seventh day, seven times, and then the walls will fall down. Everybody goes, really? Okay, that's day one. Day two, my feet are hurting. 
know, day three. You know, this Joshua really thinks he's somebody, doesn't he? Day does four, his elevator five. go to the top floor? Does he really know what he's talking about? But for whatever, you obviously haven't seen Josh and the Big Wall from Veggie Tales. We used to watch that all the time, and it's one of the great classics of all time. But you know, it is so much of our human nature, and what we need to do, and this is where we have the body of Christ. The body of Christ is not there so that we can all gather together and have a nice potluck dinner. The body is there to encourage us to endure through everything we're facing and keep trusting the Lord because the day will come when the walls will come down, whether it is through in this life or the life to come, I don't know. But Christians need to be there for one another and not be so independent or withdrawn because isolation is what the devil loves. All right. Thank you, gentlemen. Awesome. If you have questions, send it over 877-933-933. 2484. It's Guy Talk or Guys Who Talk. They're doing a great job. I've got Tom. I've got Greg. I've got Jeff. Pick on anyone you like, <laughs> just not me. All right. Uh, I'm going to get this question teed up and then I'm going to go to break because this will require a little bit of uh, energy when we come back. Referencing Ephesians chapter 1, verses 4 and 5, and Romans 9, 11 through 13. Can you explain if God chose us? Before the creation of the world, according to his pleasure and will, how do we know if we were chosen? Even if we accept Jesus and faithfully believe in him, if we were destined to not be chosen and we are the most faithful followers of Jesus, will it matter? That's the question. We'll take a break and we come back. The power panel will have to figure that one out. We'll be right back. Faith Radio and Afternoons with Bill podcasts are available because of listener support. If you are a supporter, thank you so much. Becoming a supporter today by visiting MyFaithRadio.com. We're back with Guy Talk, and if you just climbed in the car, I hope you had a great day. And I'm going to repeat the question because you missed it, and I don't want you to miss the questions because they're so good. This came in uh, a little after 4, so uh, 5 uh, five o'clock Eastern time, and uh, it was referencing Ephesians chapter 1, verses 4 and 5, and Romans 9, 11 through 13. Can you explain if God chose us before the creation of the world according to his pleasure and will— How do we know if we were chosen? Even if we accept Jesus and faithfully believe in him, if we were destined to not be chosen and we're the most faithful followers of Jesus, will it matter? Jeff Redorn, I'm going to start with you. The question here, let's start with, does God choose? And the answer is actually God does a lot of choosing. Now, this choosing is is like what the English word Uh, suggests that God picks some and doesn't pick others, but it's what they are chosen to that is very important to understand. So did he choose Abram of Ur? Yes, he did. He chose him to be the father of, of many nations and to leave his land and go to a land that he would show him. Did he pick Isaac over Ishmael? Yes, God picked or chose Isaac over Ishmael. Did he choose Jacob, the younger twin, over the older twin, Esau? Yes. So the the 
question references Romans 9, and, and it's about Jacob and Esau. Did, did he not choose Jacob over Esau? Yes, it doesn't mean that none of these folks were chosen to salvation. It means they were chosen for a purpose or for a role. And we know that because Abraham, how was he saved? Well, Scripture declares Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. So he was chosen for a purpose, for a role, but he was saved by his faith. Joseph was chosen. Moses was chosen. The 12 were chosen to be apostles. And yet, if they were chosen unto salvation, then what happened to Judas? He clearly was not saved, but he was chosen. He was chosen for a purpose, but salvation comes through faith. Now, once you, by the way, he chose he chose Paul to be the apostle to the Gentile, and, and he chooses us as believers. Now, when it says that we are chosen, this is a little different chosen. It's actually a different Greek word. It means that we are chosen, meaning the elect or his called out ones, his electos. And so we have been chosen to be holy and blameless in this world, to represent God in this world. That's what we've been chosen for. We've been called out. So I don't think scripture points to that God chooses some unto salvation and others not unto salvation. I think scripture says that God chooses kings or prophets or people for different purposes over time. Uh, but we are saved by faith. Yeah, I mean, if you take a look at verse 4, it says, even as he chose us in him. Remember, this letter is written to Christians. So he's saying that you've already been chosen. He chose us. But the purpose is not to accentuate the fact of being chosen. It's what we are chosen for. Because if you go on in the passage, it says, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In other words, those of us who have received Jesus Christ, that we're called to live differently, holy and blameless. And then he goes on to say, he predestined us. By the way, predestined, the word predestined or predestination is only found four times in the New Mm -hmm. Testament. Predestined means he determined beforehand. In other words, he's saying, for those of you that receive my son, I, I have predestined or I've determined that I'm going to adopt you. I've determined this ahead of time. I'm going to adopt you to uh, myself as sons through Jesus mm-hmm. Christ. That's mm-hmm. what he's really saying in that passage. I agree with both of you, and let me add one more statement to this. Mm. I had to learn, and, I, and it's a hard thing to do. We have a tendency to be myopic with the Bible. That is, we look at a verse, and then we try to understand the whole Bible out of that verse. That's a hard thing to do. We have to look at multiple verses to get a sense of this. And the reason I say that is in 1 Timothy 2, uh, verse 3, this is the good and the pleasing in the sight of God our Savior who desires all people to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. So the highest statement in Scripture is the Lord wants everybody saved. That's a good point. Nobody's left out of that. Now you come down to these passages that we're looking at. Now you're dealing with a different picture altogether. It's not necessarily a salvation question that he chooses some to be saved and some to go to hell which some people believe, but that's not what it's saying. But some people are chosen for a purpose, or a, we're all chosen for a specific purpose, and our goal is to find out how what that is and live that out. That's right. But the salvation issue has nothing to do with him choosing us to be saved. It's already his will that we be saved. The whole thing comes down to us surrendering to the blood of Jesus. You know, uh, it, go ahead, Jeff. Go ahead. Go, okay. Um, the other aspect of this is God's foreknowledge, right? Yeah. Does God know 
who is going to be saved and who's not going to be saved. Well, of course, an omniscient God who knows the end from the beginning knows that. And in fact, those who choose him have been written in the Lamb's Book of Life. But there's a, a difference between God knowing what's going to happen and God causing what's going to happen. When, when we talk about purpose, it, it's easy to go ahead and, and generalize and say God has a purpose for all of us to be his followers. But the passage that we talk about, Ephesians 2.10 and others, talks about a unique purpose. Then, and, and people are saying, well, what, what is my purpose? What's my unique purpose? In the soul of every human being, at the moment of conversion, God gives you a passion that you have to uncover the closer you tune your the more you tune your heart to the to the heart of God this passion becomes evident and generally it means this it's either a people group God's called you to serve or a cause he's called you to embrace or a combination of the both and every time you're around it every time you're near it even though you can't conceptualize it something stirs within your soul and it's usually it's 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 something visceral. It's not something mental. So the idea is pay attention to what God stirs your soul about, because the cause which will be directly aligned to your purpose will either be a people group He's called you to serve, a cause He's called you to embrace, or a combination of the both. My uncle landed at Normandy on D-Day and survived. Uh, he was mm. part of the invasion army. They had one cause. That was to defeat Germany. That was the cause. That's what they're all after. But he had a different. He had a particular job within that cause, and his was to be a foot soldier to lead other men uh, to get them through the bogs of France and to get them moving on to Germany. That's the same way here. We all have the same cause in the end to know Jesus, to be a disciple, to make disciples. But I'm going to pick on Bill here for a moment, if he doesn't mind. Bill, after coming to Jesus, somewhere along the way. Listening to the Lord used his comedy ability, his speaking ability, his host ability to build that in a way that would give other people opportunity to hear the gospel. So that may not be the only purpose, Bill, he has for you, but that's a significant purpose, and you're living that out. Most Christians that I struggle with want to be saved, but they don't have a clue what to do after that. And we have to be teaching people what that clue is and help them discover their giftedness and put it to work to fulfill what we're called to do. Mm-hmm. Thank you for that, Tom Parrish. That was very sweet of you. I think the enemy wants to have um, people not hear the good news. That's, that's it. Yeah. Keep course. information out of their heads. Yeah. Not allow information in. So, Well, you know, it, it, the biggest fear of the enemy, who is a created being, by the way, the greatest fear of the enemy is that you and I become his formidable foe. And how do we do that? When you tune your heart to the heart of God? When you embrace your unique purpose, when you actually execute it, it's not a preference, it's not a proclamation, it's actually a commitment. And then all of a sudden your spiritual core becomes strong, that any wind of his temptation is not going to blow you over. You then become a threat to him. You are his formidable foe. And the last thing he wants, he knows that he who is in you is stronger than he is. And so he's going to keep you, just like Bill said, and, and Tom is alluding to, and Jeff, I'm sure, would agree, he wants to keep you away from any strength that you can gain because he doesn't want to have to deal with you as his formidable foe. Good word. 
All right. Good word. Oh, there's some great questions coming in. And if I want wind these guys up with a minute and a half to go, I will be doing <laughs> the questions a great injustice. So I'm, I'm going to pick on a quick one, and I'm going to ask uh, Jeff if you would answer this one apart from the other two, and that'll take us to the end of the hour. Um, is it biblical to take a loan out from parents or in-laws when you are married? Everyone involved are Christians. <laughs> sure. There's no, uh, there's no uh, considering that I've actually done this uh, when I, in my younger days, uh, yeah, there's nothing unbiblical uh, about taking a loan out from your parents. Um, you know, the excess of interest is the scripture talks about that to a yeah, degree. Users, uh, so, so you don't want to uh, charge excess interest. That's on the parent side. But yeah, to borrow money is is no problem. Now, I would avoid excess debt at all costs. Debt is uh, just kind of enslaves you to those who you have borrowed money from. So, um, you know, I'm a big believer in keeping to a minimum the amount of debt you have. That's across all debt, credit card you know, cars, houses, and so on. Keep it to a minimum uh, so that you don't uh, have obligated all of your income just to pay off the debt that you've taken on. So how's that? A minute and a half. I liked it. Nicely nicely done, Jeff Verdorn. All right, that's hour one, but we got a full hour ahead. Guy Talk is going to be two hours, and I love that. We're just getting started. And the questions are great, so keep them coming. We're going to give you a couple of minutes to figure out what question you want to ask. You can ask more than one. You can include two questions in your ask, just so you know, 877-933-2484. Again, 877-933-2484. we got a great uh, day coming up on June 28th. It's going to be our day of forgiveness. We want you to listen as much as you can throughout the day because all the uh, programmers are going to try to focus on forgiveness. So every program, every conversation is going to be focused on what the Bible says about forgiving others. There's going to be some amazing stories of why we should do it and how to do it. So be encouraged, and we will help you through that process. We'll take a break and be right back with Hour 2 of Guy Talk. Thanks for listening. Programming like this is made available through your support. Information available at MyFaithRadio.com.